Um, it's been about six weeks or so since I've been here. I think we were here on July 10th, but um, we have been, uh, my, my wife and I have been out of town for a lot of the months. So if you've uh, visited our church or started attending since then, um, that's who I am, one of the pastors here, and it's, uh, we look forward to meeting you guys uh, here soon, hopefully, uh, throughout this, um, this month. So uh, we're in Genesis, I think Mark said that, uh, Genesis uh, for a sermon series here. We've been in it since January, and we'll be really throughout the year. Uh, it was kind of neat how that really worked out um, in terms of um, a weekly schedule. We'll be uh, basically finishing this up right before Christmas, so we look forward to that, and then something new after, afterwards as well. So um, we'll probably take a break in September as well to talk a little bit about uh, our value of church planting, uh, so that'll be about uh, three or four weeks from now, too. Uh, my wife and I spent a week in, um, it's lighting down, let's light up a little bit here, a week in California with one of our church uh, planting networks called Acts 29, and I uh, kind of got really excited about that in a lot of ways as well, and we'll talk a little, about, a little bit about them and some of their values, which then are some of our values here as well. Uh, we value planting a certain kind of um, church that we'll, uh, we'll talk uh, a bit about here in a few weeks as well, which kind of then re-ups some of our values too as a, as a community. So we'll vision cast for that and kind of let you guys know a bit, about, a bit more about who we are as a church too. If you're new to our community, uh, that'll be a, a time to tell you a little bit more about who we are and what we value and what uh, makes us tick. So, all right, so we are in Genesis. Uh, like I was saying, the first book of the Bible, if you want to turn there, easy to find in your pew Bibles. It's the first, first book of the Bible. It means beginnings. And so just to recap a little bit about where we have been and where we're going, uh, Genesis means historical and theological beginnings. It tells a story of how God made the world and the universe and how sin entered the world and then how God stay, stays strangely but beautifully committed to his creation and how he makes promises. So after uh, human beings, it was a Satan-incited thing, but a human being-participated thing, rebelled against God, God stays beautifully and unexpectedly committed to all creation but especially us. And he starts making these promises and that can be a bad thing, I guess. You could, you could promise ill upon somebody or harm upon somebody, but that's not really what God is doing. He, he is a judge, and, and there is that aspect of his character, but these promises he makes right away are promises for our good and for our benefit. So then they're good promises that find their goal in Jesus Christ. So a lot of the promises early on are kind of infantile, or that doesn't mean less important, just they're kind of small and, and foggy and unclear in some ways and very specific, oddly, uh, as they, thank you so much. I'll try to remember this now. Here we go. Good. All right. Uh, we'll look at Isaac, uh, the, the person of Isaac today, who is um, Abraham's second son, but the more important son, uh, born to him too here in just, uh, just a second. But um, so a lot of these promises, and I bring him up uh, to say that a lot of the promises early on come through personal promises made to a man named Abraham. So it's kind of a crude summary, but it gives you an idea of where we've been. Sin has come into the world, darkness, evil. Uh, hell, essentially, all of that, and it's really been tanking uh, people's relationships with God and all creation. It's kind of felt that, that fallenness away from God, uh, but God has stayed committed, and, and the promises he's making come through this person named uh, Abraham. So a big way to understand this portion of the Bible is to understand it this way. We've been talking and preaching this way for a number of weeks now, but just to summarize, Abraham and his, his wife and his kids, his posterity, his kin, uh, and their experiences, the words sometimes that they say, the prayers or intercessions they make for other people, their experiences, or sometimes the ways that they contrast uh, with, with Jesus eventually. But a lot of the positive uh, aspects of, of who they are and how God is working in their life lead us ahead to Jesus Christ or prophetically anticipate him or other some New Testament reality. And so this is a summary, too, of kind of how we've been talking about Genesis these past few, few months Genesis is a book of genealogies, which tells us that God is the God of history. He's the God of procreation, and that he's going to save the world and undo the curse through a person from a particular line of people, Abraham's family. And that family will give way, bloodline-wise and resemblance-wise, prophetically to Jesus Christ. And so when we talk about the promise then in this book, and, and that may be a little bit enigmatic, but when we talk about the promise, we talk about this in a progressive manner or an unfolding manner. So God is, is promising things that start kind of small, but they get big and they find their fulfillment or finish line in Jesus Christ, and they are related. And so an example might be like a, a man taking up at some point in his life, taking up cooking. Uh, like he just wants to start cooking for himself and eventually for his family. He writes down some recipes, but he's not that good at it, but he just really likes it. 
But his son sees this and really wants to get better at it. So he becomes really good at it and cooks every day for his family. He's the main cook in the, in the house, and he gets really good at it. But his son takes it another step further. His son becomes a chef, goes to school for it, and becomes a chef and so forth. But then his son becomes a world-renowned chef and, and, and on and on and on. It's kind of like that. When we reverse engineer these promises, when we start with Jesus Christ in the New Testament, we might see that he's kind of like a chef. He's this world-renowned chef. But we reverse engineer it, look backwards into the Old Testament and see all these people that came before him were kind of like chefs as well. They're just mini-chefs, or not that great of chefs. But they wrote down recipes, and they have these things that they valued food-wise, and it kind of it reminds us of Jesus. So we talk about promises, think about them that way. What God is promising here, are, they're not to be isolated or, or set on an island. They are to be uh, seen as though they have their, their finish line in Christ. And so today then, as we talk about Isaac being born, who's uh, Abraham and Sarah's son, uh, today's not really about Isaac being born primarily. That's something that happens in the passage, but this is about what theological truths orbit around that event. The, the circumstances surrounding his miraculous birth and how exactly God enters this situation, how he visits, how he cares, how he shows grace, and how he fulfills promises in a way that reminds us of how he'll fulfill promises in Christ, in his son, later in the story. And so if that's still kind of like, what was that, or over your head, I'll explain this as we go and show you more examples of this. Uh, three themes particularly today that I think fall very neatly in three different paragraphs in the passage. So we'll start just by reading the first seven verses today. Uh, Genesis 21, 1 to 7, if you want to follow along in your Bibles or devices or here on screen, um, We'll start with this. So Genesis 21, 1 to 7. More about Abraham and Sarah. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse his children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. All right, so the first thing we're going to look at here today is the theme of God bringing life to the barren. So as uh, the passage says here, the Lord, in verse 1, the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. If you're just joining us, God promised that this was going to be the case. Remember, after all hell breaks loose and sin enters the world, God says, I'm going to bring someone through Eve and then eventually through Abraham who is going to undo this curse. He's going to bring a blessing, which is the opposite of curse, uh, to, to the world, to this cursed world and, and undo death and undo the devil's lie and undo the separation and exile from God that all humanity was experiencing. And so this is a bit of a promise of that, kind of an unfolding, progressive, small thing, but it's pointing ahead to Christ. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived, and then Isaac is born to her in, in her old age. So remember, the circumstances surrounding this event are more important than the event itself. So more important than Sarah just having a child is uh, the fact uh, is the circumstances surrounding the, uh, the event theologically. In fact, this is one of the biggest themes of Genesis, and, and I, I think you could probably argue all throughout the scriptures as we approach Christ, but this is a major theme that kind of is revisited throughout the Old Testament on a number of, of levels, but this idea of God bringing life to, to the barren. So, so circumstantially, and it, it's cool how narratively they repeat this, so you know, it's, it's very clear that this is, this is a child from Sarah. It's very clear that God promises. It's very clear what their age is. It's very clear she's barren. So they're both here around 100 years old when this occurs. This is the theological, circumstantial piece. So Sarah was barren, obviously. Yet God allows conception and causes conception miraculously to the point of her laughter. And this is, this is good laughter, a laughter of joy here. And Isaac means he laughs. And so this is why his name is Isaac, because Sarah laughed with joy. She rejoiced. She was barren. She was way past the age of childbearing. There was basically no hope for a child, and yet God miraculously allows this. And so she laughs. And even says, other people will look upon me and laugh over me and rejoice with me that this has taken place. So 
This is really intentional then on, on God's part. You know, God, God is not here kind of forgetting, oh yeah, I made this promise and I was busy over here working with these people and I forgot, now what am I going to do? She's 100 years old. That's, that's silly. God's not aloof. God's intentional. It's very important. You could even argue theologically necessary that she was past the age of childbearing, that she was 100 years old, that she was barren. Because it was a miracle then. It had to rely then on God's strength and not on, not on hers or Abraham's. So the reason it's important then is just that. It's to show us that the promise, God's promise here, this unfolding promise that, remember, remember, finds its goal in Jesus Christ, is based on God's power, not ours. God does good to us on his terms. As it says in verse 1, the Lord did something to Sarah. He did good to her. But it was his power, not Sarah's, that's, that's earning it or that's wooing it towards, himself, uh, towards herself or, or Abraham or anything like that. God does good to us on his terms, in his timing. We don't bring it about ourselves. Later in the biblical story, and I'm giving you kind of the A and the Z here. There's not the whole alphabet because there's a lot of other places this comes up. But later in the biblical story in the New Testament, God will once again work this way when he enables Mary, Joseph's betrothed, a virgin to conceive Jesus. And that's an even greater miracle than Sarah's, right? Because overcoming barrenness, that can happen today. People might be, a woman might be infertile or barren for a while, then able to conceive later in life. And that uh, still, 100 years old thing is kind of a miracle, but just bear with me for a second. Virginity, though, takes it to another level. Virginity is an even greater miracle. But, but again, this shows us that Jesus is from this line, bloodline-wise, but resemblance-wise as well. Jesus is from a line of overcoming barrenness, of overcoming virginity. This, this line of life coming from non-life, this life of God doing everything and us doing nothing. And these two women here, you can say if you compare Sarah and Mary, what did they do to bring pregnancy upon themselves? What, what, what did they do to bring their pregnancies about? Especially Mary, right? But both of them, what did they do? Absolutely nothing, right? It was entirely God's strength, entirely God's work that did it. In the same way, this is this ultimate theological connection that we make between these, and we'll see this more progressively as the sermon goes on and as Genesis goes on later. In the same way, we're saved by God's grace, not by what we do, not by our works. We do nothing to be saved in the same way that Mary did nothing to bring about her pregnancy because we're all barren spiritually. We have no life in us, and so we need a God who works precisely in these kinds of ways, and he does so through his son, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of a virgin, and one who came to raise the dead. Only something he could, he could do. And so we might say, like Sarah does, I know for those of us who are Christians in the room, we might actually use these same kinds of words as we talk about our testimony. We might say, like Sarah said, who would have said that I would nurse children? Who would have said that Abraham's wife, 100 years old, barren for life, would not just conceive but have a healthy pregnancy and bear a child? and nurse a child, and, and that child will be healthy. Who would have said that? Yet here I am. We might use the same language and say, who would have said that Chris Walker would be saved from his sins? And if you knew me in my early life, and even today, some of you are like, well, yeah, I totally say that, but, but especially early on. Who would have said that? No one. Yet here I am. Not even have looked for God, really. Wasn't even really looking for him, yet all of a sudden he found me and turned my head and and wooed me to himself. And that's all of your stories if you're Christians today. Who would have said that you would be saved, you dead one? But yet he walked by your graves and he spoke into them and he raised you from the dead. I mean, these are these kinds of, in other words, and to kind of pull from, I didn't read Luke 1, 34 to 37, but in verse 37 here, this is in reference to Mary and her virginity. For nothing will be impossible with God. It, it, she, she's linking impossibility with virginity leading to pregnancy, which is, it's, it's the same thing as saying the impossibility of salvation is, is something as well. Like Jesus says that later in his ministry, he says, it's impossible to be saved. It's impossible to be saved from your sins. So why are you trying? It's impossible to be saved. But then he says, as God says here, but not with God. All things are possible with him. If he does it, then, it, then, it's, then it's possible. If he enters the, the scene, if he enters into our story, if he enters our hearts, if he enters our minds, if he enters our 
our, our history, if he walks this earth as one of us and dies in our place as he, as he does through his son, then it's possible. Then it's, then it's not impossible anymore. So the theme then of God bringing life to the barren is, is a gospel theme. It's woven throughout the scriptures. We're seeing the first one here. This is the A of the alphabet. And there's a B and a C and a D. And there's actually some of these in Genesis as well. We'll see before the sermon series is over. But throughout the Old Testament, we see barren women miraculously conceive over and over again all the way until we get to Mary. Not to say that he will always allow infertile women to conceive, but to say that, that those stories point beyond themselves to something greater spiritually, in that we are all barren spiritually. Or from Ephesians 2, we are dead in our sins. And so we need God to be the active party as he is here. It's impossible for a virgin to conceive. It's impossible for a 100-year-old barren woman to conceive. It's impossible for you and I to be saved. But not with God. Not if God enters the story. Not if God looks upon us kindly. Not if God leads us to, leads us to laughter over how, amazing he's loved, how amazingly he's loved us, how merciful he's been towards us. See, laughter is the only appropriate response, really. Joy or thanksgiving or worship or just happiness in that because we haven't done anything. We're responding to God's amazing grace, you know, towards sinners like, like us. And so actually then, our response to salvation, to Jesus dying on a cross for us, is kind of like Sarah's here to becoming pregnant. It's really, it, it, they're kind of different, but they're not really at the same time. We laugh and we say, who would have said this? Who saw this coming? And yet here I am, saved. I'm a poster child for grace. God has just looked upon a very, very wicked man kindly and said, he's mine. I'll save that one. I love him. I love her. I'm bringing him or her to my family to dine at my table and forever they'll be saved. I'm dying for their sins. So there's no more exile between us anymore. All right, so let's keep reading now. The second thing here is from Genesis 21, 8 to 14, verse 8. And the child Isaac grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. All right, so the second uh, gospel theme here, kind of orbiting around the fact that Isaac's been born, again, is, uh, is this. The theme of God's promise being greater than, than human works. And so We've kind of already talked about this through the theme of barrenness, but it's also seen in a different way. And, and before we say anything about this, I just want you to kind of hear that and understand that narratively this happens a lot. God wants to say one thing, but he says it in a number of different ways to pound it home in our mind because it's that important. So basically, he's going to say the same thing we were just talking about, not through a theme of barrenness, but through a theme of Abraham having two sons born through different uh, circumstances. One by human effort, one by Abraham's effort and his works. That's the one talked about here, uh, not named, but his name is Ishmael, born by Hagar, the slave woman. And then one by God's effort. That's Isaac, born by his wife, uh, Sarah. If you guys were here on July 3rd, I think it was the 3rd, uh, Chris Thompson, one of our elders who preached that day, talked a bit about this a month or so ago, but I want to revisit this and, and kind of recap a little bit, but also move on because there's some things here that Paul the Apostle in the New Testament quotes directly from Genesis 21, verse 9, which I'll talk about, that um, was not covered a few weeks ago. That's kind of a special particular thing here that builds. So we will, uh, we will get to that. But first, remember this. So going to Galatians 4, this is in the New Testament now, uh, written in the first century by the Apostle Paul. He's talking about this event, or the fact that Abraham has two sons, and they allegorically represent different things, uh, two testaments. Let me read it first. For it is written, 
that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. The slave woman being Hagar again, the free woman being his wife, Sarah. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, or by works, while the son of the free woman was born through promise, or God's doing, not human beings' doing. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants, or testaments, or ways that God is kind of covenanting relationally, moving towards people relationally in and throughout biblical history, an Old Testament and a New Testament. So just to unpack that then, Ishmael, Abraham's first son, which if you were here a few weeks ago, you heard about this directly, was born by a slave woman, which then Paul is saying represents the slavery Israel was eventually under beneath Old Testament law. It couldn't be kept. The Old Testament was a covenant of works or conditionality. It's where, where, where God said this to people on, on Israel on occasion, do this and you will live. Do this, then I will bless you. Keep this law perfectly, then I will allow you to stay in this land that I have given you. It, it was a conditional covenant, a covenant of works that's different than the covenant that comes later through Jesus Christ. And so Paul is linking the fact that Hagar was a slave with this type of slavery then that people were under in Old Testament times. You could say that we are as well. If we look at the law, like the Ten Commandments, for example, this moral aspect of law-keeping that the Bible talks about in, in certain areas in the story, as though we have to keep them to be saved. It's a type of spiritual slavery. It cannot be done. It can't be kept. So it's kind of like we're handcuffed and ankle-cuffed and straight-jacketed. We can't keep it. The more we try, the more we can't do it. And even if we keep it with our hands and our mouths and our heart, we want the opposite. And so our heart always betrays us. And, so, and, and God does this intentionally to show that it was never supposed to be about us, but about himself and his solution, which is his son, Jesus Christ, which is grace. And that's, that's the other covenant, the New Testament, that Isaac represents. Isaac, Abraham's second son, as he's saying, was born by a free woman, his wife, Sarah, which represents the New Testament or covenants of grace and freedom. Not of law, not of what you do on a daily basis, but about what God does, gospel, good news. So it's a covenant then of unconditionality. It says, Believe in Jesus and you will live. Not do this, do this law and you will live, but believe in Jesus and you will live. This is from Romans 10 in the New Testament. It's a, it's a marked contrast between doing and believing. They are opposites. Not that there's nothing to do in the New Testament, but in terms of how we are saved, doing and having faith, works and faith, are distinct contrasts in the Bible. As he's saying here, represented allegorically by Abraham's two two sons. So then he moves on. We talked about that um, in a few weeks ago and again today, but he goes on here a few verses later, same context. And this is where he brings in today's passage all the more. He says, now you brothers, Christian, you are like Isaac. You are a child of promise. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac, so also it is now. But what does the scripture say? Quoting Genesis 21, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. So Paul is referring to here is uh, in Genesis 21 specifically, is this verse, which is really easy to read over, and it's not really explained or unpacked, and so Paul helpfully does that for us in, in Galatians 4. It's this verse. Sarah saw Ishmael, the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham first. She saw him laughing, and this is not a, not a laughing of joy. This is a laughing of, of mockery, or Paul says here, persecution. It's, it's to be presumed that he's looking at this old woman nursing a child and kind of laughing at that kind of ridiculous state, or just not liking Isaac, just thinking he's ridiculous or, or something, and laughing at him. It's a very passing reference here, but theologically, Paul's linking onto that, and he's saying the same thing is kind of happening today, and he's saying in his day, and we could say the same thing today as well, in that, he's saying there are Ishmael types and what they represent, works-based people types, 
uh, who are mocking and persecuting Isaac types or gospel types or Christians. There's this thing going on today that was happening here kind of in a whispery manner that's really finding fulfillment uh, today in the first century. So again, referring to works-based legalistic types, thinking people are something when they're nothing or trying to work ourselves or towards God or climb the ladder towards him, those types are laughing at, mocking, persecuting people who are saying, I'm all in on God's grace alone. They're laughing at the, the former's laughing at the latter, mocking the latter, persecuting the latter. And that is, uh, it, it's helpful to understand and, and to remember for some of you, the background of the book of Galatians is, is just that. Uh, in, in the first century, Paul's writing this church that kind of forgot the gospel. It, there were people in that church who were saying, Jesus is good, but you need something else. Uh, people who were requiring works in addition to faith. So trust Jesus to be saved, but then you have to do this as well. Paul's basically saying that's Ishmael, that's Hagar, that's slavery, that's Abraham's first son, which was not the heir of the promise, not the line of the Christ. Represents a different kind of covenant that was always intended to fail because we cannot get to him. So he's saying that's what those uh, people are like. And we, people who have begun our race of faith by the Spirit, by God's intending that we be saved, by God's act of grace in the world, by dying on a cross for our sins. We've, been, we've gone all in completely on that and said, it's not about what we do after that. It's only about every day believing this gospel till we have our last breath. That's who we are, Christian. We can forget that, and some had forgotten that. But Paul's saying, like Abraham had two sons, uh, there are two ways of thinking uh, covenantally about a relationship with God. And one was an old way that was meant to fail, and one was a better way, better promises. Promises not built on what we do, but on what God does alone for sinners and dead people like us. And so uh, today then, just an example here, because um, we'd say this is happening today too. I've seen this. I've, I've been on both sides of this. Um, Ishmael types to Isaac types or legalists to grace-centered Christians, you know, again, they might say things like this or like this but different, but they might say Jesus is great, but you also need to be good. Or your spirituality is not ascetic enough. You don't fast enough. You don't keep Sabbaths. What's the deal? Your spirituality is way too simple. You don't lobby for enough causes. You don't volunteer enough. You don't give enough. You haven't fully shaken your sexual addiction yet. You better do it or else. You see what all these are saying? None of these are Christ. These are all other things that are, that, are, that are added on. And I've heard versions of these from my own heart or others' hearts for years. And, and you, you guys may have come into the room today with some of these presuppositions about the faith. They actually aren't the faith. Uh, this is, this is, these are misconstruings uh, or misconceptions about what true Christianity uh, really is. And, but this is what persecution of true Christians can look like from other people who think they're Christians, but they're, maybe they are, and they're very immature, but maybe they're not. Maybe they think they are, but they're not really. They haven't gone all in on Jesus. I've heard it said before that um, this is true. You either take all of Jesus or none of him. You can't take three-quarters of him and add a quarter of your awesomeness onto the equation of salvation and be saved through it. Because if you do, all of a sudden you're, you're, you're neglecting the cross, that it's sufficient for you. And you're basically becoming a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness or a traditional Roman Catholic, but not a biblical Christian. Biblical Christians are like Isaac. We're born of the Spirit by God's decision, by God's act of grace. We're not born by Abraham saying, God, you're too slow. I'll have sex with Hagar and make you a son so you can work now. Look what I've done, God. Like the Lion King here, you know, kind of holding up the baby. and Look what I've done. Like, don't, don't ever say, look what I've done to God. That's not, you know, God's gracious and we're his children who say stupid things and he loves us. But the gospel's not about us saying, look what I've done. It's about God saying, actually, I'm not going to use that boyish male because it's not by works. It's not by your effort. It's by me saying, I will choose when Isaac comes into the world on my watch. I will surprise you. I will work miraculously. I will work through barrenness. I will work through a 100-year-old woman who's never had a child without a hope in the world for the child. 
I will work that way to show you that one day I will come into the world and die on a cross on my watch. When the time is right, when no one's expecting it, to fulfill all the scriptures, including this, uh, Genesis 21, uh, to, to save you. So it's always, always by works. And, you know, and you can think about it this way too. And this is, narratively, this is why we conclude these things. If, if Hagar and Ishmael are not cast out, here, away from Abraham and Sarah and Isaac, but if they're kind of brought into the family and if Ishmael's kind of an heir with Isaac, what would that communicate spiritually about the gospel? What would that communicate spiritually? You're saved by, by grace and works, right? You're saved by what Isaac represents, grace, good. But what's not good is you, you, you say you're saved by what Ishmael represents, human effort, Human effort, works, being good. But God says, actually, Sarah's right. Abraham's saying, dude, it's my son still. What are you doing? God says, no, actually, Sarah's right. Listen to your wife. Cast out the slave woman. Cast out her son because I want to be clear. It's only through Isaac and his eventual descendant, Jesus Christ. It's only by the, this, this line of me doing everything, you doing nothing, that I work in the world. I want that to be crystal clear. And, and you, can, you can see, it, if you know this story, it's, it's amazing. I encourage you guys to <clears throat> read Genesis this way. Remember the devil's lie in Genesis 3? Those of you that know the story, we're here for that. The devil lied to people. He said, uh, when you eat from that fruit of the tree, you'll be wise. God knows that you'll be wise. You'll be like him. You'll know the difference between good and evil. You'll be able to be sufficient on your own. This is the initial lie that, that wreaks havoc and curses all things and leads people away from God. It's the lie that you don't need God that much. You can eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You can eat from this tree of morality and sink your teeth into it and say, God, I can be good enough. And so it's actually an act of seeking to do good apart from God that was the first sin. Not murder, not adultery, not lying. It was rebellion that looked like seeking to be good apart from God. And so you can see, if that's the lie, look at how God is beautifully contract, countering that in the story. You see, every time a person tries to do something as a moral effort to climb the ladder to God, God judges it. Or God says, cast that out. And he enters with himself, saying, no, this is how I'm going to recreate the world. This is how I'm going to restore it. This is how I'm going to save. I'm going to show people over and over and over and over again that I save, you don't. That I make you good, you don't make yourself good. That I'm the solution myself, not being a good person. Not working uh, to, to climb the ladder. And that's, that's a huge lie even today, right? This is something we see. I was watching the, the Olympics last night. Um, I do like the Olympics. I also like and kind of hate the commercials. I think that this, the Olympics are kind of this thing where we've got this, um, the, this beautiful kind of hand-holding thing happening kind of across nations and this coming together of humanity that I really like. But it's also kind of a damning thing in one sense too because it's kind, of a, it's kind of a chance for the world to say, look how amazing we are. You know, we can, we can do this if we just hold hands and kind of sing together. You know, I'm making fun, I know. But basically that's kind of what's said. It's, that's the subtext of a lot of the Olympic mantra and so forth. A lot of these commercials, it's kind of Babel-like, if you know the story of the Tower of Babel, sort of like that, but uh, a commercial I saw, you know, last night, and if you, I mean, it's crazy. Just turn on the Olympics and with commercials, and you'll see this very quickly, but um, how many commercials, you know, we just had these athletes come on and kind of sit us down and say, don't let anybody ever tell you you can't do anything. And they kind of get angry about it. You guys seen these commercials? We've seen this. We, this is just part of our culture, right? Pick yourselves up. Get it done. You can do it. Don't let anybody ever tell you you can't do something. And all right, maybe there's a place to say to our kids or ourselves, work hard, right? Go after something. That's, that's fine. But it's, this is something we syncretize a bit with, with our faith. We can, it, God did say in the beginning, you can't eat from this tree. You're not God. You're a creature. I'm enough for you. You can't do this or that. And we have to acknowledge, I mean, if there were Olympics commercials back in Genesis 3, what would they have said to that? <laughs> you know, like, how dare God say we can't do it? I'll show him, right? I mean, if we weren't to do it, we would feel it, and 
it's just kind of one of those things in our culture and it's just in our sinful humanity. God is coming against that. And the message, the working of God is coming against that, saying, I've made you beautiful, I love you, but your sin has led you away from me. And it's not about you climbing the ladder, it's me coming down the ladder. So anyway, we should move on. Um, so we talked about this, what does it mean to cast out the slave woman a bit? Again, I'll just leave that there. But this is important for us to do, you guys. Cast out slave woman theologies. This is what the Bible says. We have to cast out works-based theologies that you believe or you don't even know you're believing yet. Cast out the fact that you're enough. Cast out the fact that it's Jesus plus something else. It's only Jesus. And so moving on here, Genesis 21, 15. Let's read the last paragraph, a few things here. When the water in the skin was gone, so speaking of Hagar and Ishmael being cast away, she put the child under one of the bushes, Ishmael. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. As she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy. He grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. And his mother took a wife for him uh, from the land of Egypt. And so the last thing, he, uh, and as we read those first two paragraphs, you may not have expected to get this paragraph. I, I never do. Whenever I read the first two, I think, you know, if I were to imagine how this would end, I wouldn't have necessarily written this, but I love that God writes it this way. So this is the last theme, the theme of God caring for the outcast, or I would say the legalist as well. I'll come to that. Again, verse 17, God heard the voice of the boy and reached out to Hagar and says, fear not, God has heard the voice of Ishmael where he is. Get up, lift up the boy, and then he shows her a well of water. They're dying of thirst, they're out of water, and she's basically at wit's end. And to try to, and just try to put yourself in that situation as best you can. She lays this boy down under a bush and they're out of water. She walks a half mile away or so and turns her back because she can't bear to watch him die and take her last breath and almost listen to him stop crying and take his last breath. She can't bear it. And that, that's where she's at. It's in that state God enters and saves and consoles and uh, quenches and speaks to and, and calms fears and essentially saves and that's what I want you to see about this. This is kind of unexpected. We've talked about Hagar and Ishmael kind of being the bad guys, at least what they represent, um, kind of the bad, the, the antagonists here, uh, is that God still reaches out to them. Isn't it interesting? God says, actually, they should be cast out for all the reasons said before, but then he goes and chases them down and cares for them. So what I think this is saying to us, and some of you are brand new to the Bible, um, I would just tell you that this, basically what's happening here in these seven verses, and you could go in context here plus a few more, is basically summative of the whole of the Bible. In that, in our sin, we've been cast away from God's presence. We've been cast out of the Garden of Eden. We've been exiled. We've been, and kind of to go along with what Ishmael and Hagar represent, we've kind of laughingly mocked at the idea that God is sufficient alone and we've self-deified. But eventually that's harmed us, and we've wept, we've been out of water, we're dying of thirst, we don't even really know it, but we kind of do. Some days we do, some days we don't. Our kids are dying, spiritually speaking. We're, we're without a hope in the world, and at that point God enters in and speaks and says, fear not, and points to a well and says, up, get up off the ground and save your child, and essentially just saves, right? So we have this exile due to self-deification, pursuing morality more than God, and we talked about that. But then basically, it's just a two-part thing. God pursues and saves on his own accord, providing solace and water and a future hope through Jesus Christ. Now, and we're seeing this narratively here, of course, but basically, what's happening to them is paradigmatic of the whole of the Bible. This is, this is there's a lot that it says, but this is basically the story. We've all been cast out, but God pursues and saves. 
not based on what they do. Again, again, note the, the grace here is incredible. Not based on their effort, right? I mean, verse 19 again says, uh, God opened her eyes and she saw. It, even before that, what, was Hagar and Ishmael, were they looking for God? Were they morally upright? Does it mention that? Not even close, right? That's the point. God pursued by grace. God saves by grace. In an Isaac, child of promise, I do everything, you do nothing manner, pursues Hagar and and Ishmael. Even in regards to the well, it doesn't say that Hagar found a well after lots of, of tiresome searching, right? She's just sitting there crying, and God says he opened her eyes and points out a well. Similarly to how in Acts 16 in the New Testament, it says God opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to the gospel being preached by Paul. It's not until God opens the eyes and opens the heart and enables us to be saved that we are saved. Genesis 21 is the same as Acts 16, the same as a slew of other passages that pound home this idea. The gospel's not go and find God. It's not the gospel. It, the gospel is God got off his throne and condescended himself. He became human like us and took on weakness so he might die for us as a human being. That's the gospel. It, it, it's He found us. And that's you know, again, if, remember, these are the bad guys here. If there's, if there's anything to, to be pulled away from this, you know, are Hagar and Ishmael the bad guys? And that's, yes, that's the point. You know? God is a God who loves his enemies. And you are his enemies. I am his enemy. The cross is so sufficient that it actually brings not, you know, kind of dirty people towards himself, but people who are actually actively his enemies. That's the gospel. That's the good news. That's what happened through Jesus Christ's ministry that culminated on the cross and through the empty tomb. He's undoing sin. He's dying for people who are crucifying him, who are spitting on him, who are mocking him. That's the ultimate laughing and mocking thing, right? When people walk by the cross and they mock and laugh at Jesus. That's the ultimate Ishmael mocking the ultimate Isaac. Jesus is the ultimate Isaac. He's mocked. He's persecuted unto death for us, but God had a plan uh, for, for that. But if you are an enemy, that, that's the good news, is that this strangely tells us that God loves Hagar's. He loves still. He loves legalists. <laughs> he loves Ishmael's. He, strangely, right? It's odd. But if you ever feel on the outside of God's people, and I know some of you do, all of you will, but some of you especially are today, if you feel on the outside, the fringes of God's people, if you feel cast out, this is your God in Genesis 21. That's who he is towards you today. That's the gospel and the good news. Do you believe that? Apply faith to the heart hard in that area. Work hard at belief that that God is the same God who's moving towards you today and has through his son, Jesus Christ. Do you believe it? Do you feel it? Are you the one crying and weeping, calling out without a hope in the world? And, and in this, this is, and in terms of what they represent, are you trying to save yourself? You know, God loves the bad guys. That's just what the story is saying. And he, die, he, he kind of becomes one of them to die for them. It's amazing. So, a couple of things here then. Um, again, I'll just I'll kind of end with this. <clears throat> a couple of things here. This is a command in Genesis 21. To Sarah gives to Abraham and God backs it. And says, Sarah's right. So, we have to ask, what does this mean, right? Cast out the slave woman. That means nothing to us on a physical level. Spiritually, it means everything. What does Hagar represent? Hagar represents legalism, works-based theologies. Cast them out. Per Genesis 21, that, that put the burden of salvation more on us than God, or even ones that put it on us and God. That's where it gets tricky. And you'll hear that in the church and outside the church. Theologies that say it's about God and it's about you. That's the harder one to kind of jettison and decipher. But it's either Isaac or Ishmael, not both. There's only one child of promise. There's only one line that leads to Jesus. Only one line that says, this is how you're saved. It's by me on a cross, not by you with good works in your hands. 
fact, in Galatians 3, uh, Paul says this to um, misguided, foolish, going back to works types, Galatian Christians. He says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And I would ask the same question to you all today through the lens of this and, and myself. You, you've all, if you're a Christian, you, you've gazed at the cross and you've said, he's alone. He, he's it. He's enough. I believe. You, you began your race by the Spirit and God saving you there, not by your moral effort. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? You've, you, your eyes have seen the man who was publicly portrayed as crucified and you've seen him as a substitute. So he asks legalistic Christians only this, how did you begin? It's not both, see? It's works of the law or hearing by faith. It's not faith plus works. It's how did you begin? It's, the answer is by hearing with our ears, hearing with faith. It's foolish to go back to moral effort. It's foolish to go back to good works. It's foolish to go back to a place to think we need to do something and pray enough and tithe and fast and go to church and just be amazing and put on a mask and be ascetic and kind of, uh, you know, cut ourselves and all this stuff to kind of get to God. Um, it's foolish. It's, it's a bewitching. It's a curse to think that. God says in this passage, I can make the barren fertile. I can make and keep promises. I can find and provide for the lost, the thirsty, the legalist. I can do the impossible. I can reconcile my enemies to myself. And here's where I do it. That's where Genesis 21 points. That's the final finish line. That's the goal. Believe in me, child of Isaac. Or maybe child of, of, of Hagar, child of Ishmael, child, slave. Come away from this expectation to be perfect and come as a sinner into the dining hall of God and partake of his food, and we do it by grace. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today, uh, for your grace and the gospel of uh, Genesis 21. Thank you for showing us through uh, multiple lenses that it's about you pursuing, it's about a child of promise, not works, and it's about you making life from uh, the barren. Uh, help us, God, to respond through communion and through song uh, here for our remaining time. Uh, in, in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, guys, well, for our last little bit of time here for our service, we are going to celebrate communion. Uh, and, and some of you, this might be a new thing to you, but uh, for a lot of you, just to remind you, uh, communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, all synonymous, uh, basically is a time of remembrance. Uh, it's a time we remember Christ uh, as we just read, publicly portrayed as crucified. And so Jesus then, at, at this last supper he has with his disciples hours before, uh, all four gospel accounts recount this in some fashion, it says that he broke bread and, and poured out wine and said, this bread represents my body and this wine represents my blood as given, my body given for you and my blood poured out for your transgressions. Then he says this, which links to what we talked about today, this is the new covenant in my blood. Not the old covenant, the Old Testament, based on works. This is the new covenant, which is distinct and different. It's, it's based on what this bread and wine represents. It's my works. It's my effort. It's my sacrifice. It's my love. It's my body being given and broken. It's my blood being shed for your sins. That's the essence of the New Testament period. He never talks about the law, never talks about the Ten Commandments, never talks about what they should do, except just eat in remembrance never really talks about them. It's he talks about himself as these stipulations alone of this New Testament. And so Christians who are forgetful, like us, who always kind of wander back towards, being, towards thinking we're amazing and doing good things for God and trying to climb that ladder, are meant to take this meal as a reminder that we are children of promise, that we are uh, children of Isaac, essentially, as Galatians 4 says. That we are in this line by faith, even though we are Hagar's and Ishmael's before, we've been found and we've kind of transferred over into this new family. In this, underneath this, this umbrella now of God doing everything and us doing nothing. It's, it's by faith. It's by grace we're saved, alone, uh, not, by, not by works, so that no one can boast, Ephesians 2 says. And so, 
If you're not a Christian today, I want to invite you down to pray and be saved uh, and come messy. Again, if all this is true, there's nothing you have to do to be saved except to believe that Jesus died for your sins as an act of grace, that he walked by your tomb and shouted your name and you woke up and walked out. If you believe that, if you want to choose to believe that and work hard at believing that for the first or millionth time, maybe you've kind of wandered, never fully believed that, and you want to fully believe that today, just come down and talk to me during this time, which we'll talk about in a second, or one of our leaders, Spence, will be up here too. Uh, we'd love to talk to you about that more and pray with you and then invite you to take this meal. But, but this meal, the Bible says, is only for true believers, only for true Christians that have cast out slave woman theologies or works-based theologies, to connect that final dot. Works-based theologies. They said we've cast that out of our life. We've said, and maybe we're in the process of doing that. Maybe we've, we're imperfect, of course, but we, we believe it. We've done it. We've said this meal alone, what it points to, is alone what saves and so if you believe that for the first time today, come and eat and drink and remember through eating and drinking. And if you are a Christian, a lot of you are Christians, we, you don't have to be a member of this church, by the way, either, um, or even a regular attender. If you're a Christian, you believe that, please come on down and, and eat and drink. So um, just a quick word on how we do that. Uh, the band's going to come up and play a few songs. During that time is a time where you can come down and kind of exit your, your uh, aisles, your pews there, and come down the center aisle, break some bread, pour some wine or juice, we have gluten-free option here, too. And then kind of exit towards the outside. It's a very open time of uh, eating, drinking, singing, celebrating, and there will be people up front, too, that love to pray for you as well. So prayer, we'd uh, love to pray. So invite the band up, and we'll start here and uh, spend a few minutes in worship and um, thanking God for dying for our sins. God, thanks again for who you are. Thank you that all Scripture uh, points to you. Uh, thank you that uh, this meal uh, ultimately is a sign, it's a symbol, uh, it's a sacrament. It's kind of a grace imparting, a grace pointing act where we, we eat, we drink to say that your death on the cross is our ultimate and only spiritual nourishment. We don't worship other gods that we used to, we don't worship ourselves anymore, uh, we don't try to approach you through a ladder, but we believe you approached us through a cross. And we remember that. We go back all in on that, even though we've maybe forgotten that. We just choose in the context of the local church to remember that corporately. And we sing and we thank. And we laugh like Sarah, uh, joyfully. Uh, not like uh, uh, Ishmael, mockingly. Um, but we laugh joyfully, knowing that God, for some reason, has just chosen to save us sinners uh, from death, from our sins, and to end that exile um, from you that we've been born into in this fallen world. Uh, we pray this all in Jesus' name. Please bless our time these next few minutes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.